Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. Greg Fripp is the founder and executive director of Whispering Roots, Inc. Whispering Roots is an award-winning nonprofit organization dedicated to bringing STEM education, healthy food, and economic development to underserved communities, both urban and rural, by using urban agriculture, aquaponics, aquaculture, hydroponics, and controlled environment agriculture. A graduate of Florida State University and U.S. Navy veteran, Greg entered the corporate world, becoming head of talent acquisition for TD Ameritrade. In July 2010, Greg left to pursue his vision for education, growing food, and developing vibrant communities, leading to the creation of Whispering Roots. In addition to the Omaha metro area, Greg has projects in Haiti, on reservations, and also in Madagascar. Greg's efforts have resulted in Whispering Roots programming, receiving multiple awards, including two presidential awards, a STEM Innovators Award, and a Friend of the Environment Award. His vision is behind the construction of a brand new, next-generation, 18,000-square-foot STEM education and food production facility located in North Omaha, Nebraska. Greg, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Let's begin with you leaving a successful corporate career to pursue your vision for education, growing food, and community development. So tell us more about that vision. I was working, and I was happy and excited about the work that I was doing, but I wanted to give something back to a community. Because when I was younger, teachers took an interest in me, and that changed the direction of my life. And what I didn't want to do was I never wanted to look back in life and say that I should have done more to help when I had the opportunity to do that. So in June of 2010, I started thinking it was time to make a change. I walked away from a really good job to give something back to the community. You know, my thought was I would do that for a few years and then move back into the town acquisition world. But then I quickly realized that the problem was so much bigger than I thought it was going to be that it went from being an idea where I would just give something back to becoming its own nonprofit. So talk more then about Whispering Roots and, and what it does. So Whispering Roots is a 501c3 nonprofit. And we say we grow, we feed, and we educate. You know, our focus is to take healthy food and STEM education, which is science, technology, engineering, and math, and tie them together so that we can improve the lives of students and communities, uh, typically being underserved. We like to say that we will go where other organizations can't go or won't go to work. That's typically where we operate. So the goal is basically to use agriculture as a tool. Not only are we feeding people, but then we're teaching people skills and working on economic development for these underserved communities. Talk a little bit more about the activities that go into the various components of, of, of this vision that you have. You've mentioned education is one part of it, but then there's also the actual growing of the food, and then you need facilities. And, and you've landed on this, this problem, a big problem, that is keeping you from extraordinary wealth in the, in the corporate world. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's really a good point. Don't remind my wife. Okay, about sorry that. about that. <laughs> anyway, so the short question is, maybe amplify a little bit those activities that you get up to. I was a hands-on kid when I was in school. You know, I wasn't someone who could sit and stare at the board and just copy notes. You know, I was someone who needed to get my hands dirty, who needed to make things and build things. And I've realized that there were probably a lot of other kids who were just like that. And what we tend to see these days, there's not a lot of hands-on experiential learning. So agriculture provides a tool, and basically we don't use it only as food, but we use it as a tool to engage students in many different ways. Because when we grow food, say aquaponics where we use fish water to grow vegetables, or hydroponics where we're using some type of nutrient solution, maybe without soil, you know, to grow food, or even traditional agriculture where we might do a raised bed where we're growing above the ground in case there's something like lead or something in the ground. We see a lot of that in some of the communities where we operate where they can't actually grow in the dirt. We use agriculture as a tool for students to be able to engage in whatever way makes sense. You know, some of the kids might be interested in the science behind growing or the horticulture aspect where they're interested in seed and growing different types of food and how can we grow more food more efficiently. Some of the students might be interested in the culinary side where they like to grow food to eat or to become chefs or something like that. And some of the kids might just be interested in some of the different aspects, maybe the lighting piece that goes into growing food or maybe plumbing if we're using pumps. So there are all these different ways for people to engage. And what we say is we don't 
believe that there's only one way to grow food and to use these techniques, what we want to do is provide the children options and provide the community options in terms of what makes sense for them. And we just happen to use food to do that. You know, we operate in what could be called, you know, food deserts where people have a lack of access to healthy food. So for us, using food as a tool, as an educational tool, allows us to help figure out how to break the cycle. So, you know, there are several different ways if we're doing an aquaponics piece, once again, which is fish and vegetables, or the hydroponic piece, growing without soil, which is very important if we're operating what we call controlled environment agriculture, where it's greenhouse growing, because as we all know, in the middle of Nebraska, in the middle of winter, in January, February, we're not growing anything outside, but people still need to eat healthy food. So we want to be able to grow at what we call at the point of consumption, which is growing food in these communities that don't have access to healthy food so that they can take care of themselves and ultimately break that cycle of lack of jobs, economic development, and lack of good, healthy food. So you've mentioned those phrases, urban agriculture, aquaponics, aquaculture, hydroponics, and controlled environment agriculture. Clearly, they fit part of that STEM approach. So maybe define those a little bit for us. When we're looking at like a STEM, a science, technology, engineering, and math, or what we now say STEM to STEAM, which is science, technology, engineering, art, and math, or science, technology, science, technology, engineering, agriculture, and math, you know, it allows us to take some of these topics that might otherwise be um, disinteresting to students or something where the kids, you know, if they're sitting and staring at a board and they're talking about math, but it doesn't relate back to anything, then some of the kids tend to gloss over and they think that it doesn't fit for them. So what we do is we take the science piece and what we attach it to agriculture so that it's meaningful to the kids it's application at its best. So when we start talking about hands-on experiential learning. So instead of just learning formulas, they're now learning formulas that attach to something that's tangible. So if we're talking about from you know a science perspective where maybe the kids are looking at what pH is or acids and bases that they otherwise might not be interested in, you know, that affects the ability of a plant to grow. You know, the pH of the water, the pH of the ground, it affects the uptake of nutrients for the plant. But if you say that to a student, we're gonna learn about pH and strong acids and strong bases, you know, most kids these days are going to gloss over. That's not something that's of interest to them. But if we say you have to learn how to manage the pH because that's going to affect how well your tomato plant grows, how good your food is going to taste, whether or not your crops will survive, then that's something that the kids can connect with. So now that agriculture, in addition to the food nutrition piece, it's helping us enhance the educational opportunities for these kids. It becomes real. And I think that's something that's missing, especially, you know, in some of our underserved communities where there not, might not be that culture of hard science, engineering, because it's just not something that they're seeing in their families. Some of these kids might be the first ones that are going to school. We once again use food as a tool to show these kids that they have opportunities. So you start thinking about, you know, how can we grow food better? You know, I'm a firm believer that our students, that a community saves itself and that we should operate from that perspective that nobody's coming. And the only way to do that is to grow our own students, to grow our own future and have these kids be knowledgeable in all these different areas. Because it's not only one area, it's not just the science piece that's going to feed our communities. It's not just the technology. It's not just the culinary piece that's going to get food out. It's going to take all of these different kids, all these different community members to actually deliver that model. And so we have to expose them to it and then let them self-select. So you know, when people think of STEM, for some folks, STEM is not routine. Some of these kids don't even realize some of the jobs that are available so that using agriculture in whatever way, be it aquaculture, controlled environment agriculture, we're exposing to them, we're exposing them to what's possible. Give us not just a definition of those terms, aquaculture and, and hydroponics, that sort of thing, but, but what does that look like? So if, if I went to encounter that, not just what is it, but what does it look like? So in our classrooms, there are several different ways that you can do it. You might see people who will come in and say, there's only one way to grow food, you know, and that's a... That's disaster, you know, that's just I'm waiting. Um, what we say is there are many ways to grow food to feed hungry people. So you can have, if we're thinking about aquaculture, you know, some of our kids in the classroom, they're doing small systems. They might have a three-gallon tank that has some goldfish in it, you know, or a 10, 15-gallon tank that might have, you know, some type of betas or something in it. Or we might have a 150-gallon tank or a 300-gallon tank that's growing tilapia or perch or bass or something along those lines. 
what we try and do is show kids and expose communities to all the different sides of, say, aquaculture in terms of how do we grow because this is next generation. Basically, you know, a lot of our food, a lot of our seafood is going to be coming is going to be coming from uh, recirculating aquaculture in the next five to ten years. So what we have to do is get kids in the pipeline that can manage these systems everywhere from something that's three gallons all the way to something where we're talking about 50,000, 70,000 gallon tanks. You know, that's just on the aquaculture side, but we can build these systems in the classroom. When we talk about, you know, what does recirculating mean? We can take that water that's flowing through our fish tanks. We can send that up to where our, our vegetable crops are growing and we can use the roots from those crops to help filter that water. When we were talking about stem earlier, you know, a hard science piece of that is there's beneficial bacteria that lives in the water that allows us to convert that ammonia or that waste into food for the plants. And then the roots from the plants can suck that waste out of the water, which cleans the water for our fish. Our crops grow nice and clean. And then the clean water goes back to the fish, which allows us to grow, you know, anywhere from 25 to 35% more food using about 90% less water, which is very important when we start thinking about, you know, how can we maintain our fresh water in the future? And that's on the aquaculture side. And when we combine aquaculture, the growing of fish, with our horticulture, then we get aquaponics, which is using fish water to grow vegetables. And that's one piece of what we do. And then we have what's called drip irrigation. And with drip irrigation, that's where we've learned and we teach people how to use very low amounts of water to grow really nice looking crops. You know, and the Israelis are really good at this because they live in the desert. They're masters of drip irrigation. When we go to places like a Haiti, or if we go to a place like a Madagascar or something like that, especially a place like Haiti that has poor soil, very difficult to find fresh, clean water, every drop matters, teaching those folks how to use a drip irrigation technique where it's just a drip, drip, drip of water and they can get good, healthy food is very important. So we show people that technique, and then there's what we call controlled environment agriculture, which is greenhouse growing, where we can control the environment and maximize the plant growth by setting the environmental controls so that that plant gets the best possible environment, regardless of what's going on outside, in order for it to be able to grow big, green, and healthy, and for us to maximize production per square foot. And those are the types of things that you see. If you look you know, on TV, you're seeing stories about greenhouses being um, constructed on top of grocery stores, apartments, old buildings, you know, as we're trying to bring food close to that point of consumption, you know, there just aren't enough people in the field to understand controlled environment agriculture. And a lot of our fresh food is going to be coming from these controlled environment greenhouses, you know, over the next 5, 10, 15 years, you're already starting to see it. So those are just a few of the techniques that we try and teach, in addition to what we say is raised bed growing, where you construct some type of grow bed, which is, you know, it could be 2 by 4, 4 by 4, 4 by 8 feet, And you use some type of compost or something like that, and you grow above the ground so people who live in areas that are brown fields or contaminated soil can still produce good, healthy food. And that's more traditional growing where you put seeds in the ground, of course, in a raised bed, and then you use traditional watering or you can use a drip irrigation to grow really healthy food, once again, at the point of consumption in these underserved communities. wondering if you might help us by talking a little bit about the broader context in which 
whispering roots and, and these endeavors exist. So, for example, the production of food has become more industrialized as part of a global economy. There has also been, it seems, more attention also, though, to a farm-to-table movement, uh, the, the full use of uh, from nose to tail, for example, and the idea of community gardens and perhaps green elements to our urban infrastructure. So these are just a few things. I don't even think I'm, I'm barely scratching the surface. So I'm, I'm wondering if you might help give us a broader context of, of Whispering Roots' role and place in these alternatives to th- these forms of food production. You know, you've really, you've just kind of nailed it when we talk about what does a true food system look like. And when I mentioned a little bit earlier that there's no one way to grow food, in these communities, especially underserved communities where they have a lack of access to healthy food, you need all of those partners that you just mentioned um, in place in order to provide a comprehensive solution to the struggles that they're facing. Everywhere from you know community gardens, where you have members of the community who come together to produce food for the betterment of that community, you know you have you know, some of your economic development work where you have commercial growers or people that are small-scale farmers. You know, the family farms that are trying to make a living these days and trying to survive, you know, there's this large-scale agriculture, which we know we need that, but then there are also individuals who just want to be able to feed themselves or feed their communities. So what we have to do and what Whispering Roots does is we don't say that there's only one way to do anything. We go into a community and we understand the needs of the community and that we, what we do is we tailor solutions that fit the need of that individual community be it bringing in different community partners who might better understand, you know, whose focus is community gardening and doing raised beds or something like that. We'll partner with them. We have several partners in the Omaha area that we do that with. We all sit around the table and do strategy to figure out, I'm a firm believer in stay in your lane. You know, I know what we do well, and then we do that. And then we find partners who can specialize in these other areas. Um, But you know, in this day and age, we need to be able to get back to some of the small scale family farming. Because for some of these small-scale farms, you know, the ability to grow an extra crop, say if they're going to do season extension where we would build a small greenhouse or what they would call a hoop house that allows them to grow further into, you know, the winter, just being able to grow those extra crops might allow those folks to keep that farm. You know, we need to be thinking about that, what's in the best interest of a community. And like I said, for us, we never come in and say, we know what's best for you. This is the only way to do it. Our first understanding is what needs to be, where are the gaps? What are they missing? And then how do those gaps get filled, be it by us or one of these other community partners? So I think, you know, and asking about the role of Whispering Roots, in addition to being specialists in the areas like controlled environment ag and aquaculture and recirculating systems, one of our biggest contributions is aggregating and connecting the dots, seeing the big picture and figuring out who's the best partner for this individual piece and then getting that partner to engage. Because we partner with you know, places like you know, Creighton University, Metro Community College, Charles Drew Health Center, you know, thinking about, we partner with UNO, Bioinformatics, because all these folks play a role in providing a more comprehensive solution in meeting the needs of that individual community. Because I'm also a firm believer in that if we can't make it better, let's not make it worse. Because a lot of these communities that we deal with, they're used to being disappointed and so my model is, let's go in. If we can't help, let's not make it worse. If it's not something that fits into our area of specialty, let's bring in the right partner for that so that at the end of the day, our client gets the best experience because one of our major clients and one of our focuses is the children, right? So I will tell people, if your interest is not in making life better for these children, then Whispering Roots is probably not an organization for you because our core constituency, our core clientele are the children. Because if we get the children, we get the future. I'm wondering then if you might talk a little bit about the projects that you've been involved in internationally. You've mentioned Haiti, Madagascar. You've also talked more locally too. Uh, You've talked about Native American reservations. Perhaps paint a picture of some of the projects that you've been working on and the work that was done there, the the needs that were being addressed, and maybe some of the unique aspects of each of those. You know, one of the first things that I noticed... when I realized when I was starting Whispering Roots, you know, our goal was to come into an underserved community like North Omaha is where we were going to start and try and address some of the issues that North Omaha was facing. 
And when I said earlier that, you know, I quickly realized that the problem was much bigger than I thought it was going to be, it was, I, ran, I had this understanding that, you know, not only is it North Omaha, it's some of our rural areas, it's Native American tribes, you know, on an international basis, there are all these challenges with hungry people. Um, you know, so then we started thinking with some of my partners, what can we do to make life a little bit better? When I walked away, I said, I want to make things a little bit better for these communities. Where are the needs? So you know, we, I ran into a partner. Some people were talking about work that was being done in Madagascar with the Henry Dorley Zoo, with Ed Lewis and the Madagascar Biodiversity Project. You know, their initiative, they were putting in, they're trying to save the lemurs. They were reforesting. They're doing all these things. But at the core of that business, they were trying to use the local community to help reforest, which would then you know, help the lemurs, but then they're also trying to do economic development and provide people with income so that they don't feel like they need to cut down the trees in order to provide, you know, firewood or charcoal or whatever to make a living to feed themselves. So, you know, with that project, it was putting in an aquaponics system over at the Himmerdorli Zoo in the Madagascar biodiversity, you know, area, and then working with scientists to teach them how to run these systems, how to build them, how to run them, so then they could go overseas back to Madagascar and install these systems in Madagascar in the areas where the zoo is working so that people can practice and learn the technique. And then once again, it may be if not only do they feed themselves, but they can get a crop that they can then sell and they don't feel the need to cut down the trees in order to feed themselves and generate money. Um, so that project, you know, just a fascinating project, of course, run by Ed Lewis and his team. You know, Madagascar, the work that they're doing, just absolutely incredible. They just went over a million trees that have been planted there. And that's not something when I started Whispering Roots that I ever thought that we'd be developing a project that would be working in Madagascar. That's just, that was never, that wasn't even on my radar. Um, but we have that project and they are wonderful partners for us over there. And then we have, you know, people were talking about the work that we were doing in Madagascar and they started mentioning Haiti. And there were some folks that were going to be traveling to Haiti. I didn't know, you know, anything about Haiti. We knew it was there. We knew it was, there was poverty, but I didn't know the extent of the poverty. And I really didn't think that we would be traveling or working in Haiti because I thought our international component would come several years down the road. But there were some folks who were going to Haiti, and they asked if I could come along and take a look. But we were really busy with all the work that we're doing in the States, you know, our core business. But they said, can you just come and take a look? So got on plane with the folks. We went to Haiti. You know, our first day, our first full day in Haiti, they took us up to what they call a feeding center. And that's where they bring the sickest, weakest children. Um, the parents can't feed them. Haiti is the poorest country in our hemisphere. So they took us to a feeding station and we saw children who were basically starving. Um, and you talk about being just emotionally rocked when you see what abject poverty looks like, when you see what starvation looks like, you know, up front when, you know, they're having you hold these babies and try and feed them. And some of the babies are so weak that they don't even cry. They don't even make noise. They just lay there motionless. And then they would show us, they showed us children who had been fed, who were full of energy, who were running around, who looked like, you know, any a young child that you would see anywhere. When I saw that, then I knew that we needed to be there sooner because every day that we weren't doing something to help those children, help those communities, and they were losing children. Um, so that's how we ended up in Haiti. And that project was probably about three years ago that we started there. And once again, it was understanding what the need was um, and figuring out what solution would work best for them. So with them, we started with drip irrigation, and they had some really good partners at a mission there who came in and installed drip irrigation. We wanted to teach them the fundamentals so that they could just start growing something consistently. We call that rescue food, where we have to feed them first before we can teach them anything. They need to be strong enough in order to learn everything else, and also because a lot of the folks are uneducated. So we need to teach them in a way that they can learn so that they can master it. Um, so we started working on the drip irrigation, and then we moved on to teaching them the aquaculture side because they need that protein. They're growing tilapia. And with them, they started, this group that we worked with, they knew nothing. Now they're mastering drip irrigation. We started by building a hatchery and a mission there, and they now have about 70,000 tilapia swimming, and those tilapia are going to be feeding some lakes that we're working with that are close to this hatchery. So it becomes an economic development model where we're teaching people how to grow fish in floating cages. And we just had a really great success with one of our organizations where for the first time they grew fish in their floating cages, they harvested a crop, they sold that crop. Not only did they have food to eat, but they sold that crop. They made money, which then allowed them to buy a pump to move more water to irrigate their crops. They could pay a farmer to help plant seed. It's this whole model of economic development. 
you know, we don't want to go into a community and stay. We want to go into a community and say a place like Haiti and teach them to save themselves, operate like nobody's coming, so that over time that cycle gets broken and it truly becomes a sustainable model. But for the first time, and they were so excited, they made money. And our goal is to show them what's possible. And so that project in Haiti, that's all, it's continuing to grow. Uh, so we're in the central plateau. We're up away from the coast because as you see, hurricanes come through. The breadbasket of Haiti is along the coast. Hurricane comes through and wipes out all the crops. People starve again. They start all over. So we're trying to push that more up into the central plateau area to protect the crops, protect um, the production from some of the hurricanes that they see on a regular basis. But it's not easy work. We say you need to have intestinal fortitude if you want to do this type of work. Um, so, you know, we, we spend a lot of time in Haiti, go back and forth. It, but I don't want people to get the wrong impression. I don't love going to Haiti. This is not something that you want to do to have to go and try and feed hungry people. You know, the best day for me will be when I do an email where I call or I send a text and saying I'm preparing to come, getting ready to make my, you know, schedule, get my tickets or whatever. And they respond with, we don't need you. We've got it. You can come if you like, if you want to see something, but we've got that. That is, that will be the best day for me in any of the companies or any of the places where we go, where the response is, we've got it. And then we can move on to another community. So we want communities to save themselves. Take me outside, sit in the green garden, nobody out there, but it's okay now, bathing in the sunlight, don't mind if rain falls, take me outside, sit in the green garden. a butterfly high as a treetop down again putting my bag down taking my shoes off walking the carpet a green velvet um you know moving back locally native american tribes reservations and we have abject poverty we have a lack of food we have a lack of clean water in areas you know, I was talking to, you know, to one of our partners and asking if we did one thing, um, what, would, what would it be? If there's one thing that we could do for you, what would success look like? And the response was, you know, Greg, we used to be an agricultural people, and now we can't feed ourselves. Um, we want to get back to that. And so you think about that. The goal, what they would consider to be success with one of our partners, is if they could just feed themselves. And so our focus there is, Back to the basics. What type of agriculture, what do we need to do? What type of training do we need to institute? What type of plan, what type of support do we need to put in place in, or, in order for it to be sustainable over time? And once again, our goal is not to take over anything. So we have a really nice relationship with the Nebraska Indian Community College. Also, we're doing work with Indian Health Services up in the Macy Walt Hill area. Uh, we got a nice USDA um, rural development grant to help people start learning how to grow food. We're building a greenhouse that's going to be on the Nebraska Indian Community College campus where the focus is teaching people these techniques, you know, recirculating aquaculture, controlled environment agriculture, traditional agriculture as well as we work with Indian Health Services to try and combat diabetes, and then connecting all these different partners who are in that area. Um, we do work with the Center for Rural Affairs up there as well, but the goal being to get all the partners focusing time and energy and resources to allow people to become self-sustaining. And then over time for us to be able to work our way out of the community and to put in this training component, which is one of the reasons why we're with Nebraska Indian Community you know, College, is so that there's this training and educational infrastructure so that over time it just becomes part of the community. And then we work, out, work our way out and the community takes over. So we have that project underway with another grant that came in where we're going to be expanding and doing our next greenhouse up in the Santee area uh, with Nebraska Indian Community College because our goal is to have a model that we develop and then replicate that model. And that's every community that we go into, have a model that is flexible, that adapts to the community, but one that we can replicate and that communities then themselves can actually maintain. Because if we make it so complicated that they can't do it, then, you know, what's the point? You know, you mentioned something that I think was really powerful. Uh, you said that the Native American community came to you and, and they said, we used to be an agricultural people. And it suggests to me that many communities across the world, uh, Madagascar, Haiti, uh, Native Americans, and elsewhere, 
we are peoples who knew how to work with the land. And so it suggests to me, hearing a phrase like that, that there is this sense of loss, a loss of knowledge, wisdom, a loss of intuition or competence with the land, with the seas, with food. And it sounds to me a little bit then as if you are reaching back into some traditional skills that we used to possess as people, but also advancing those forward to a 21st century context, because we don't all live in agricultural communities like we used to. And we also have a vast array of technologies available to us now. So I don't know if it's fair to talk about this sense of loss and this reestablishing of traditional techniques with something 21st century, and, and, and maybe that's something you could speak to. Oh, yeah. Um, this is something that I hear all the time. We work in urban areas. We work in rural areas. We work internationally. But it's always the same. People say we need to learn how to grow food. It is an art. It is a science that's being lost where people don't know how to feed themselves, which is really sad because if we think about the way that we move food, if something were to happen where logistically we can't move food in an efficient way, how do communities, how does that happen? How do they feed themselves? How do people eat? But there is now this push to get back to the basics, the fundamentals of growing food, vegetables, fruits, healthy, nutritious food, you know, less processing, more direct access, and how do we do that in certain communities? So no, you're absolutely right. You know, something that we might do, say, in Omaha is not the same thing that we would do, say, in Haiti, because the technology and the resources and the knowledge level is different. So you have to be flexible and you have to be open-minded about how you do your work. Yeah, I, keep, I say this, I repeat it, that you know, some people will say there's only one way to do it. That is a recipe for failure because every community is different. You know, culturally, you know, from a technological perspective, um, from a resource perspective, they're all different. So what we try and do is figure out what scale makes sense for the communities where we're operating and how do we get people back to the fundamentals of growing. And some people might say, well, you know, if you're doing a high-end greenhouse, that, that doesn't make sense for a community that's starving. And then, you know, our response is we want to make sure that what we're doing is appropriate for the community where we're working. And if people are starving in a community where they don't have access to healthy food, then we need to make sure that we're producing food at a scale that we can not only provide food locally, but we can sell out into the market to provide economic development for those people in those communities. You know, sometimes you'll hear you know, folks who will talk about, well, if you're, you know, if you have to use lights to grow food, and then you know, is that really efficient? Well, you tell that to a person who's starving. You tell that to someone who lives in a community that has no fresh vegetables and nobody is coming. I will gladly turn on a light to grow lettuce if that means that the community that is eating nothing but highly processed food and has a high diabetes rate will have access to fresh salad greens like everybody else. Because I'm also a firm believer that economic status should not determine whether or not you have access to healthy food. So we will go into a community and figure out what is the best way to get healthy food into these children and into these people in the communities. I mean, one, you know, here's a prime example. We were doing, we were participating in a community development event, and we had some of our kids who grew lettuce, you know, salad greens in the classroom, the microgreens, things like that. And then we served that at the community event, which was in an underserved community. And we had people who were coming up after the event who were asking if they could have the leftover salad greens that we had. And then they also wanted to know where they could buy the salad greens. And we told them, we had the signs up, and they said, you know, they were grown by the kids in the classroom. And then they wanted to know if they could buy the salad greens from the kids in the school because they didn't have it in their communities. So, you know, we have to, I'm also a realist, you have to be realistic in terms of what's the goal. If we have people who are hungry, who don't have access to healthy food, how do we get that healthy food into the community? Is it a greenhouse? Is it using raised beds? Because like we said, we know in the middle of winter, majority of our salad greens are coming from someplace like Salinas, California, or Arizona. How do we provide people with the food that they need in order to be healthy? Everyone doesn't have the ability to go down the street to a grocery store. In some of our communities, there are no grocery stores. That's the reality that 
you know, a lot of our clients deal with. And that's not only urban, that's rural as well. There are rural communities where the closest grocery store might be two hours away. And so in, in terms of being able to provide food, once again, at the point of consumption, you provide a solution that fits the need of that community. Sauce and some nice red beets. This is what we snacked on when we're questing. No second guessing. I don't eat no ham and eggs. Cause I'm high in cholesterol. I dig it, dig it, dig it. Do you eat them? No tip, do you eat them? We've been talking about kids. Tell me about your childhood. I come from a military family. You know, my dad was uh, Air Force, so we traveled around. I was born in Alaska, then we lived in Texas, then we lived in Turkey, then we lived in Nebraska. I actually graduated from Bellevue East, and then I left. I went in the military myself. I wanted to serve our country, uh, so I went to prep school for the Navy. I was out in California. What does your dad think about that? <laughs> That's a really good question. <laughs> actually, you know... My dad was one of those people where he said, you know, I don't care what you do. I don't care what you are, but just be the best at whatever that is. That was his motto, be the best at whatever it is. He said, you could be a garbage man, be the best garbage man there. And so, you know, our family, we are a military family. And once again, service to our country. I mean, this is a country that's given me so much um, and our family so much. I want to make sure that I gave back. And that's something that, you know, to this day, you know, I always say thank you to people who are in the armed forces because they make all of this possible. They make the work that I'm doing possible. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> so I was a Navy guy, graduated from Bellevue East, um, and then I went to Florida State. You know, they had programs that I wanted to participate in, allowed me to operate on two different campuses, get my degree. And then I went back into the Navy as an officer. I spent about five and a half years as an officer, served on the USS Enterprise out of Norfolk. Then I came back to the Midwest. You know, my wife is from Papillion, so we wanted to come home for a while. I came back and ran Navy recruiting in the Midwest, um, had a really successful tour. And then at the end of that tour, you know, my wife, I talked it over and, you know, it was really, it was tough uh, for our son, for me to keep traveling, be gone for extended periods of time. So I decided to resign my commission and stay here. What have you learned from your experiences, whether in the corporate world as a strategist around talent, as well as all of your past experiences in the services and, and your childhood uh, with those inspirational teachers that saw the potential in you? What are the things that you've learned that you've been able to carry forward into the creation of Whispering Roots? One of the biggest pieces of Whispering Roots and what's helping the organization be successful is the understanding of the importance of people. That's it. I mean, it's the importance of people to any successful organization, any successful community, any successful initiative. Everywhere that we go, I'm always trying to find, you know, that one person who can make the difference of that initiative or that organization, that community being successful. 
And who are they surrounded by? Because if we have people that have passion, initiative, and a basic set of skills, but the desire to own their own future, we can train them for the rest. But every place I've been, every organization I've built, the key has been to finding, to finding really good people and then allowing them to do what they do best. You know, I don't believe in micromanaging. I believe in allowing people to take their skills, find really creative solutions, to take risks, and not to be afraid to fail. And that's an interesting, I'm glad you, I'm really glad that you asked that actually, because when we're working with the kids in the schools, one of the things that we're doing, one of the reasons why we build our systems from scratch, why we bring in wood and pipes and they have to measure and they have to cut and they have to communicate and they have to collaborate and they have to make decisions and they're going to fail. We want to teach them that failure is okay, right? We learn from failure and I don't think in this day and age that kids are given enough opportunities to fail and learn from their mistakes. And that's even in, it doesn't even matter you know, where we are, even internationally, but the value of taking people, allowing them to do what they do best, and then not being afraid to dream big and then to fail. Learn from your mistakes and then grow as people and grow as a community. Yeah, it's, you give us really good people, they can achieve incredible things, just incredible things. Shocks me every day. You've put a lot of emphasis on partnerships. You've talked about not telling a community what it needs or imposing a solution as sophisticated as it may be, but that you want communities to discern what their needs and challenges are for you to partner appropriately with the community and with other organizations and, and partners, and then to equip people with, with these skills. I'm curious about how that process works for the community to um, understand what its needs are and, and, and how, that you, you, how you go about helping them then with gaining the skills to address those, those needs. Yeah, when we talk about our listening skills, you know, we try and find a bunch of professionals who understand how to do community engagement, how to listen to what the community is saying and then translate that into a solution that fits their needs. With me, I started off in computer science, heavy technical, writing lots of code, but then realized that I was more on the people side. So then I switched to management information systems, where it was more business and taking the technical and converted it into normal people speak. Um, so when we go into a community and the community is talking, if you listen well enough, you can hear what their real goals are. You can hear what their real needs are, what their real pain points are, and then you can tailor your work to make sure that you are actually satisfying a need because you can provide the most elegant solution to a problem that they don't even have, right? Now, sometimes, granted, the community might not know what it doesn't know, but it doesn't mean that they're stupid, right? And even when we work in, you know, underserved communities and communities where people might not have a lot of higher education, a lot of degrees, it doesn't mean that the people are stupid. And so you should never assume that. You go in, listen to what they're saying, and then we start talking about options. And then from those options, the community figures out what makes best sense for them. And then we tailor our solution to their need and make it a need or make it a solution that they can actually handle at whatever scale makes sense for them. That's kind of the model. You know, you have an idea, you do your research, but then you listen. And then based upon the feedback, you provide a solution that the community can actually accomplish. You know, I say community-based versus community-placed. Anybody can go in and place something in a community and say, we know it's best for you, here you go. And then they leave and it fails because there was no community buy-in. My response is community-based, where we go in, understand that need, the community has a buy-in, and ultimately the community owns it. So tell me more then about this North Omaha facility, which is 
to borrow from your phrasing, it's community placed in the sense that it's, it's quite visible as a facility in this part of North Omaha. But your emphasis, of course, is on community-based and that interaction with partners in the community. So tell us more just about that facility and, and what it means for you. Yeah. You know, we were talking and I was thinking about, you know, your vision becoming reality on a much larger scale. You know, originally we thought it was going to be much smaller, um, but the needs of the community were so much greater that we wanted to make sure that we could accommodate what the community was asking for in all these different areas. But it's it's 18,000 square feet of community engagement, food production, and development. And when we see a lot of things, you know, about our community where that are not positive, we wanted to focus on the positive and make sure that people understand that these types of things are possible. You know, our collaboration with 75 North Initiative and everything that's going on, we wanted to make sure that people understand that even in one of the most impoverished African-American communities, you know, in the country, that providing these types of resources and these types of facilities is essential because, once again, your economic status should not determine whether or not you have access to quality education, next-generation technology, healthy food, and community engagement facilities that are top-notch. That's how we make the shift. But then remembering that when we build it, it's designed so that the community can participate. It's not designed to exclude. It's designed to include. You know, the community needs healthy food so we can grow enough food that we can then provide out at the local farmer's market. Or we are growing fish and we're teaching about next generation recirculating aquaculture so that people in the community can learn those skills. And then over time, we do economic development so Nebraska and an underserved community can compete economically in that space. We are providing technology so that these students realize that there, there are jobs, be it horticulture, culinary, because we have a culinary engagement center. We have a you know, commercial kitchen that's designed for community engagement. You know, we don't create chefs. Some of our other partners do that. We don't duplicate their efforts, but to expose people to nutrition and health and food. And then there's the whole piece about international and national development, teaching people the skills that they need to be effective, not only in Omaha, but throughout the United States. And then if they want to travel and do work internationally, using the facility to train those skill sets so that people are ready to go in effective day one in whatever community that they operate in. It's designed to draw people in and it's designed to be beautiful so that when people come into the community, they pull up in the parking lot, they look up and they see this gorgeous facility and they have that wow factor because a lot of people, they don't think that underserved communities can have these types of things. We have as much talent as any other community anywhere in the country, anywhere in the world. It just comes down to, do we have the resources and do we have the facilities to give our students access to it so that they can compete as well? What are your hopes? So this has been an eight-year journey so far. What are your hopes for the next eight years? My hopes are that once the facility is open, that we can reach more people, that we develop a pipeline. That's one of the reasons why we're in the schools, that these students that we're working with today in, say, first grade, second grade, third grade, high school, whatever, that over the next eight years or so, that some of these students come back. The relationships that we're building today are designed so that these students come back to the community. And ultimately, my goal is for me to rotate out and for people from within the community to assume these leadership roles, that we develop our pipeline and they matriculate, and then they ultimately take ownership of the facility, of the processes, and then we break that cycle. That's my goal. If we do that, I sleep at night. <laughs> Tell me about the genesis of the name Whispering Roots. Oh, what a great question. So, Whispering Roots. You know, I believe that strong roots are the foundation of any strong plant or any strong community. And the whispering piece comes from communities who don't have a voice. And that's how Whispering Roots was born. Whispering Roots.
Live's radio show is supported by Humanities Nebraska, inspiring and enriching personal and public life by delivering opportunities to engage thoughtfully with history and culture. Learn more at humanitiesnebraska.org. To listen to this show again and to hear past shows, download the podcast at iTunes, search for Live's radio show with Stuart Chittenden, and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show. Well, I'd like to thank you not only for the conversation, but for your efforts in giving voice to communities in what is a a very essential human way, but one that seems somewhat unusual. So, Greg, thank you very much for being on the show. Thanks again for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. That's the end of this week's show. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life. Mm-hmm.